0: welcome to the creative career podcast from entrepreneur i'm brian young and on this episode we'd like to welcome sarah bleib troy to our podcast sarah is an artist that works within the idiom of minimalism across the various disciplines of architecture fashion and accessory design and the plastic fine arts hi sarah how are you today
1: Fine, thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: Glad to have you with us today. Would you like to tell us about your eclectic background?
1: I come from a family or a couple generations of artists. I think that's kind of significant. My grandfather was a businessman, but he was also a painter. My grandmother was born in New York City, and she went to the Art Students League. She was an apprentice to an artist called Joseph Pennell. She was a master printmaker and a really accomplished painter. And then my father went into business early on, retired, and became a photographer. He was an anthropologist and an author. And my mother, she was an art historian and also a potter and also then an acupuncturist. So this idea that anyone had to have a single fluid or contiguous identity or preoccupation was never part of my mindset. And so doing things in a kind of prescribed way was never the way of our family. And then when I went to school, I realized I loved doing things with my hands. I loved the repetitive arts, like weaving and textiles. I loved the crafts of ceramics. I also loved this weird, wonderful world of printmaking where you had this clean, process oriented, meticulous universe, and then this other universe where you were covered head to toe in filthy inks. As my skills progressed, I realized that I wasn't really so preoccupied with making images and a narrative that was attached to an image. I was more interested in making an evocative moment. And that then turned into where I am now, which is more architectural experiences.
0: That's excellent. It sounds like you come from a long line of creators, no matter the medium.
1: And I think it's also like this idea that you have to have one identity throughout your life. That's that's something that's really been strong for me, the idea that you can change on a dime and use what you have and then parlay it into something entirely new. And knowing that that's possible,
0: was there one specific moment in your life that you said, that's it, I, I want to, I need to be an artist?
1: No. No, there never was. I never really thought of myself as an artist, but what I do remember this one burning question when I went to high school and I wanted to get out as, as much as I could. I couldn't stand school. I loved learning, but I couldn't stand high school and the SATs and studying and doing all of this. And it just, it felt so constraining. So I'd refused to go to university and it was kind of like the funniest thing in the world for everybody. And so we'd signed me up for all kinds of odd jobs and I'd done everything from drafting, working in editing facilities, and I kept myself incredibly busy. And I realized I did want to go to university, but I wanted to study where nobody had the answer to the questions defined. And what it means to be an artist is to pursue questions that nobody has a set answer for.
0: How did you see yourself earning a living as an artist?
1: It's always a struggle. When I made objects that were for sale, they sold. When I imagined structuring it, it was more intimidating. Then I fell into working uh, in galleries, and that became more engaging for me. That was another way to pay the rent and still be engaged in the art world. And then from there, I kind of fell in accidentally into other businesses. It's kind of like the community around you guides you and lifts you up to what you need to be doing. I would say that I don't necessarily make a living off of the artistic objects that I make, but that was never my intent. So I make a living off of the investments that my endeavors have built. I took big, huge leaps and I invested in real estate. And those have allowed me a lot of security.
0: Right. And then you went into those arenas and and created value there, which is fantastic.
1: I always set out something to have value and to retain value. The objects that I make, they need to be archival in some way or they need to be ephemeral. The homes that I make need to have value. Everything has to have a monetary value in my mind. But that doesn't mean that I always have the intent of selling it. It frees whatever endeavor is to have more fluidity and to become a lot of different things before it actually matures. And then I think once a project matures, then it's ready for sale. But that can take a long time. So I think to think in terms of one-to-one ratio of earning exactly from what you're making is putting a lot of pressure on, on the thing and yourself. So it's almost like pulling money from other resources while you're doing the thing and then let the thing mature. And then that thing has tremendous value.
0: It's following a passion while solving the need for roof over your head, the things that you need in life. That makes 100% sense.
1: I've seen so many people that I know that are extremely talented and they put the pressure on themselves to sell whatever they're doing right then and there in order to make a profit, in order to then subsidize life. And that compresses the work, and it compresses their ideas and their work and their understanding of what they do in relationship to it hasn't fully developed yet. On the other hand, some of my really wonderful friends have put things out there and it received great success. And it, again, it still takes time to come to understand your relationship to the work. I've had a friend that started a jewelry business, and she got so successful, and then she hit a mark where the next plateau was more difficult to get to, and that was where she had to really slow down and align her identity and what was meaningful to her to what she was making before she was just making. But once she made that alignment, then she could connect with a huge wider audience because it had a better resonance.
0: I think connecting with something is important and it's going to drive that work forward. Knowing your background is across various disciplines, how did you decide on what art form to focus on initially?
1: It's always been pretty much accidental for me. I'm a person that you can put something in my hands and I love how to figure it out immediately. When I was a child, I learned drawing at a community arts center and that took me as far as I could take it. Then I fell into other practices, and then when I matured, I began making more elaborate sculptural things, and I put them aside for a while because they were tough and slow going, and then I needed something in my life that was just, I thought, not related to art. I needed an iPhone case. I needed a laptop case, and this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. A friend of mine showed me how to sew. Another friend of mine showed me what an industrial machine was. Another friend dropped me off at a leather supply warehouse. And then I looked around and all of these fabric stores in the Lower East Side were closing down. They were remnant stores where they had surplus for sale. And so I started collecting all these things and before i knew it my painting studio was filled with sewing machine sergers and bolts and bolts of fabric and people from the community were coming in and commissioning things for their photo books or their portfolios or their laptop and so so things grew organically from that i think it's whatever your sincerely engaged in, in the moment and your joyful engagement in it or your frustration or, or the challenges that you face. And if you bring that out to your community, how big or small it is, and you kind of share that journey, you'd be surprised how many people want to jump in and either assist, take part, or just congratulate you even. And so that's what happened with my first business. I didn't intend to be a business person. Within a few short years, I've got three retail spaces and a staff of 16. We also tried to do everything locally. We didn't want to send things overseas. We wanted to have more purview. We wanted to make sure that people around us had work. We wanted to have business relationships and buy materials from people that we knew and we liked and we believed in. And All of these things weren't cost-effective to do for a business, but we did them anyway. Then we made money, and then we made a reputation, and then other people that had really like a lot of career experience in the accessories business. One of my friends came down from Ferragamo and she was like, you need to make leather and I'm going to show you how, and this is who we go to, and this is how we do it. And she jumped on board. I loved it and I trusted all of my coworkers, but we couldn't really afford to hand the reins off to a brilliant CEO for somebody to take on the fiscal responsibilities. And so we got to this great tipping point where it was like, we either get investors and make it enormous, or we just kind of fold shop. I thought about it and I said, well, if we got investors, then I'd have to follow the paradigm. And the paradigm is volume equals sales. You'd have to produce in volume you'd have to make in volume and you'd have to push volume and people only buy volume. They only buy what they know. The mass market only buys what they already understand. So that meant for me as a businesswoman, I would have had to create copies of things that already existed or versions of. Then I would have had to produce an enormous amount of waste and then do this wholesale thing on the side. So essentially, I was just following machinations to earn a dollar. And that wasn't why I'd started the whole endeavor. So I looked at the end of the road and I said, well... The dollar isn't where I get my
0: joy. Throughout our conversation, in my head, I'm going, Sarah is legitimate, the real thing, super creative. Do you consider yourself entrepreneurial?
1: I didn't ever think I was. I didn't think I had the potential for it at all. And it goes back to, you know, I want things and I want something. It's not being made right now. It's not necessarily readily available. Or if it is, I can't afford it. So maybe I want something that I've seen on a high-end fashion runway. There's no way I can afford that. And there's no way I would spend that on a garment or on a luxury leather item. So I think number one, it's getting in touch with your taste and what you love and what you admire. And I know for a lot of my musician friends, it's becoming a super fan. It's cultivating the whole community of musicians and music makers that you admire and you want to listen to and that inspire you and feed you. I think it's the same for painters and, and for sculptors and ceramicists. You build up this thing of the stuff that you want. You just set out making your version of what you want to exist. And you keep doing it and you keep refining it. That means you're ahead of the curve. You're making something that isn't available. The market isn't asking for it. They're not providing it right now, but they will. The market will ask for it within a few short years. Then you can monetize off of that. It took me a lot of years to figure that out. Actually, I didn't notice it. It was one of the girls that used to work with me. She said, I'll take one of your drawings. And if I put it in a time capsule and then we made it five years into the future, we'd sell out. And I would take it to market. And people even in Paris would tell me I was too conceptual. That a handbag I had made was too conceptual. And I would laugh because it wasn't conceptual to me. I was just making what I love. But five years down the line, you open up Vogue magazine and Yves Saint Laurent is making exactly the same color palette in different forms. So I wouldn't say that I'm a trendsetter. I would just say that I follow this curve that's just beyond where the pencil line is drawn. And so as I go along, then it gets inked in. And other people can see the trajectory. I just happen to see how the road's forming. It's almost like being a truffle pig. I just go around sniffing until I find something I'm really enamored of.
0: I love it. One more question. If we're tying it back into business and creative. What impact do you think that creatives have on the world? And what impact would you like to have on the world?
1: It's a really good question. I think it's a very significant question. When I was coming up with my education, there was a pressure to reinvent the wheel. And every artist that I grew up around thought that they had to be new and reinvent something. They had to reinvent photography. They had to reinvent street photography. They had to reinvent fashion. And as I matured, I realized that, no, the wheel is just exquisite. It functions because it's efficient. So if I'm not reinventing the wheel, what am I doing to it? I should take it home and use the heck out of it I should use it until it's almost falling apart what I'm putting out there is the wheel with my patina on it and so when you utilize a craft uh, a formula or a concept and you utilize it so much it becomes worn and then you put that in the world it is new because nobody's ever felt that resonance on that object before so I think what creatives do is they keep things fluid so that we don't have such a strong wall. We make shortcuts, we find ways around it, we trim it, maybe we flash burn it. And so I think that's what creatives do is they say, yeah, the chair is exquisite, but there's also so many other ways we can think about doing this thing.
0: Absolutely amazing conversation, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time today. I'd love for everyone here listening to join us each week as we talk one-on-one with creative industry leaders. And remember, everybody, come be a part of the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and checking out Entrepreneur.